Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I'm the editor of the TLS, surrounded, as we know, by high-end photographs and a big old hairy dog <laughs> is Thea Lenarduzzi. Thea, hello. Hello. He is lying at my feet, in fact. Is he? Good old Alf. Um, <laughs> Snoring away. I'm surprised you can't hear him. He never disappoints and nor do listeners to this podcast. <laughs> Uh, Good segue. Thank you. Dr. <laughs> Merrily Kincaid. What a wonderful name that is. It's just filled with a sense of story, isn't it? Dr. Merrily Kincaid. That sounds like something from a hard-boiled novel I would read. Anyway, <laughs> she's emailed to say, with respect to your ongoing literary pets children feature, I believe I can claim a full house, quite literally. My best friend Rebecca was named after Miss Sharp from Vanity Fair. Good points there. She in turn has named her children Huck, Huckleberry Finn and Prince and Hal after Prince Hal. Their pets are two rotund, aloof black cats, brothers called Tweedledum and Tweedledee. The cats are in the main unresponsive to any attempts at human interaction, except when there are cold cups of tea available, which they love. Pleasingly, they can be summoned by saying dum-de-dum-de-dum-dum. <laughs> and then, do you want to hear the sign off, Thea, for, from her email? Of course. Tinkety tonk and down with the Nazis. <laughs> it's difficult to better that. It is difficult. I'm, I'm going to start using it. There. And when I saw the email, it really, uh, it really filled me with joy. Um, Nicole Cushing tweets us with two stray black cats who showed up one day at the Poe Museum in Richmond, Virginia. They're now called Edgar and Pluto, the latter named after the central character in The Black Cat by Edgar Allan Poe. So that is a good literary uh, literary pet. Donna got in touch with a complaint about her subscription, very legitimately so, which we happily fixed. But she then stayed. This is what I love about readers and listeners of uh, the TLS. She had a legitimate concern, which we fixed, but she stayed to share this. Just a note, we have a bird named Edith. I'm on the committee that has restored Edith Wharton's house in Lenox, Massachusetts. You had a fascinating article about her talk in Paris after World War I a few years ago. I have wanted to reread it in light of Trump's destruction of our rather fragile democratic system. Uh, and she invited us to visit the house if we're ever over there, Thea. Gosh, I would love to. Yeah, I would as well. I remember the piece as well. It was an Edith yeah. Wharton. It was actually the talk itself, which Edith yeah, yeah, Wharton yeah. gave uh, in Paris. Uh, time for one last one. Craig emailed to say, 
at the risk of being yet another parochial Australian, may I introduce Matthew Flinders' cat Trim, named for the butler in Tristram Shandy. He was evidently named because of his loyal and affectionate nature. Did you know who Matthew Flinders was? I, I admit I, I did not. I, looked I didn't. I, I looked him up. But the explorer who popularised the name Australia. So this, this cat was on, on the boat with him, presumably, yeah. on the ship? Yeah, I think so, yeah. So Tristram Shandy... Keeping, keeping mice away. I'm sure that's right. Yeah, so that's a double... I feel that's almost... That's historical and literary, which is a, a fine combination. Uh, please do keep getting in touch. It is a, I mean, it's genuinely a highlight of my week when I see them. You might say that's an <laughs> indictment of my week, and who would I be to criticise that? But it is a thrill to hear from you. Let us know books, pets, food, children... Anything else there? Partners. Partners, yeah. We had a literary partner last week. We did. I think pets is such a fertile area. People are neglecting human family members. I feel we could do better in the human family states. So maybe that's the challenge for next week. Tweet us at the TLS, at StigAble, at Thea underscore Lenarduzzi, or email me at stig.able at the-tls.co.uk. Get subscribing to the TLS this week. Use this special offer code, the-tls.co.uk forward slash podcast offer. Best price anywhere on the internet, six issues for £5 or $5. Coming up on this week's show, how did the ancients view the phenomenon of plague? A timely enough question to ask. The historical novelist Harry Sidebottom can offer an answer. Is international shipping interesting? Well, more than you'd think. It gets to the heart of the world's economic and diplomatic relationships. Tom Stevenson has navigated the stormy waters for us. And Clive Stafford-Smith marks the birthday of Edward Earl Johnson, who should have been 60 this month. Instead, he died in a gas chamber at the age of 27. As we consider problems with the American judicial system and the British, this seems like a good place to start. Thirty-three years ago, Edward Earl Johnson, a 27-year-old black man, was put to death, specifically he was gassed with cyanide, in Mississippi State Penitentiary. He was killed in retribution for the sexual assault of a white woman and the murder of a white policeman, though the foundations of the case against him were shaky at best. Eight years trying to prove his innocence had come to nothing. In this week's TLS, Toby Lishtig reviews a documentary made at the time, 14 Days in May, which shadowed Johnson for the final two weeks of his life. There is, he says, a twist. As the 90-minute film progresses, it becomes increasingly clear that no one thinks Johnson did it. And yet. Clive Stafford-Smith, the US lawyer and founder of the London legal action charity Reprieve, was there when Johnson choked and died shortly after midnight on May 21st, 1987. Indeed, he is the fresh-faced British lawyer Toby Lishtig describes as seeming out of place, too young, certainly not experienced enough, for the enormous responsibility of last-ditch defence. Clive would, I think, be the first to agree with that appraisal, as he writes in an accompanying piece. The execution of Edward Earl Johnson is, he writes, the grandest failure of my life. If I had known then what I know now, he would be alive today. With some 2,600 people waiting to die in US jails right now, a massively disproportionate number of them being black men, it's clear that this story is still unfolding. Clive Stafford-Smith, less fresh face now, I think, <laughs> joins us on the line. Hello, Clive. Hi there. You're, Hi. Positively, uh, you're positively haggard. Well, well Stig, that is awfully kind of you to point that out. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Clive, could you start by setting out the bones of what happened with Johnson and, and how you came to be involved? Well, one of the many madnesses of the American death penalty system is that when you're on death row um, and you've had your first appeal for the next however many years, in Edward's case, eight years, you have no right to a court-appointed lawyer. So you're dependent, and you still are to a great extent today, but you're, you absolutely were in 1987. You're de dependent on some do-gooder like me who's going to come along and volunteer to do it, and you just have no choice. And I've often thought of Edward there in the middle of Mississippi in a very racist place, which is uh, you know, where the Shwana Cheney and Goodman civil rights murders took place. If you're a poor, you know, as an indigent um, young black man and you're accused of a crime like this, who are you going to call? I mean, ghostbusters don't come. It's really hard. So you get stuck with someone like me. It's clear that this particular case is some, one that you've gone over and over again in your head. What could have saved him? Oh, look, it's, it's easy looking back on it. I was 27. I was very young. I was exactly the same age as Edward. It must be said I hadn't lost a case at that point and I sort of had some arrogance of youth. What I didn't understand is it's facts that make the difference. It's not clever little legal strategies. And I only went to the county once. I only represented him for three weeks, but I only went to the county once to see his granny, who was this lovely old woman, Jessie Mae Lewis. Um, and I didn't focus on investigating whether he did it. Uh, we just didn't back then. It, it was a sort of accepted norm and it was total madness. And if I had, I would have learned what I learned at Edward's funeral, where one of his friends who went by the wonderful name Big Mary said, yeah, I know he didn't do it because I was with him at the time. And I said, oh my goodness, why didn't you tell someone? And she says, I did. I went to the police and I told them he couldn't have done it because I was with him. And they, the white police, of course, said, you know, buzz off and mind your own business. And that's what happened. And Edward's dead. And if I'd gone to the county, you know, I didn't have the excuse as a privileged white male. I didn't have the excuse not to go to the county. There's nothing really for me to fear. Um, and so I should have found that out, obviously. But there's a sense, if you even if you had known that then, the weight of of a conviction, it's so impossible, it seems, to turn it around once it's landed in an appeal you're not starting from presumed innocence, if ever you were. It's all but impossible, it seems, to reverse the direction of travel. Well, I mean, it, it can be. There are some deranged moments. My goodness, I look back over the many years I've done this and, you know, I was just sitting here today um, working on the case of Krishna Maharaj, the British guy on, who was on death row in Florida and who's patently innocent. I got six Colombian cartel members saying they did it and he's still locked up after 34 years. That, so there are these total madnesses, but I'll say this for the Mississippi Supreme Court. They, at that point, actually really took their job quite seriously. And I think if we had presented a fairly powerful case of innocence, they wouldn't have reached that because they just, courts just don't do that. They're, they're so afraid of the reality of innocence. But I think they would have found some way to stop it. And there are lots of other ways I could have stopped it. There are lots of things that I've learned since then that could have got the case stopped. Uh, you talk in the in in the piece, Clive, about watching him die. They don't let you watch them face on. 
because presumably they're conscious of the, the barbarism that they're perpetuating the people involved in in the execution uh, does that linger with you and, and how does it linger with you when you think of of sitting there and, and watching a person die well i um i've watched six of my clients die um two in the gas chamber two in the electric chair and two in the lethal inject- injection gurney and there is indeed as you suggest a, a protocol that's designed to prevent the witnesses see the bad stuff when it's the electric chair they have that ghastly leather flap that falls down in front of your face with the gas chamber they just had poor edwards back to us so we couldn't see it i mean i wasn't watching it must be said i was really staring at my watch and the seconds were going by and the idea of you know this poor kid dying in front of me was just unreal and i didn't know then either um actually that i mean this is a long thing i'm not sure you want to hear all of it but i just finished a book about my family's history of mental uh, idiosyncrasies should we say because my dad was bipolar and part of that was exploring my own issues and i went to a boarding school when i was very young and i think that there's a long consequence of that uh, when you're basically betrayed by your parents unintentionally they didn't mean it and they send you away and you learn to dissociate it's something actually i'm afraid some of our wounded leaders including our prime minister probably don't recognize about themselves so i was able under those ghastly circumstances to go off into another world and i was able to deal with it and i didn't quite understand people who weren't able to do that until much later and i think you know that's a terribly sad thing when you have to deal with the rest of the world but it's actually very helpful when you have to deal with something quite that ghastly because it is essentially unimaginable to 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 me and i'm sure to fear that the idea of sitting there and watching a person die and not that you, that people are rushing in to help not that the the forces of the state and the forces of reason are are able to argue against it but the forces of state are the reason it's happening um, it is an almost unimaginable thing uh, to someone who's never seen it, I, I think. Um, it's totally unimaginable. Every time I've been to one of these horrendous things, it's always in the middle of the night because people are basically sort of ashamed of the whole business. And you come out of that witness room and you look up at the stars and you say, oh my God, did that really just make the world a better place? Of course it doesn't. And, you know, it it does motivate me on a sort of intellectual level, the the imbalance of power. When you think that that individual, Edward Johnson, 27-year-old kid from the middle of Mississippi with no one on his side, really, is up against the state of Mississippi, the whole state that has decided they're going to strap him into this chair and sacrifice him as a sort of ritualistic medieval or pre-medieval sacrifice to some mythical god of deterrence. I mean, it's just totally mad. It really is totally, totally mad. There's no doubt that the conviction that that moment that you just described was arrived at through racism in society as well as um, in the justice system. So I ask this next question very much in light of the fact that we have had protests around the world recently. How has the US system changed? Has the US system changed um, in the intervening years? 
Well, I, there are some ways in which it really hasn't. I mean, I tried a lot of death penalty cases, um, quite a lot of them in Mississippi, and I remember trying Sam Johnson. He appears in that documentary, and Sam, I was doing his resentencing trial, and our witnesses, our African-American witnesses from out of state, wouldn't come into Mississippi after dark. It just wouldn't. Uh, which was, I found extraordinary, but of course, very, very real. And the sheriff in that case, a guy called Lloyd Goon Jones, um, was just a profound racist. We had a hearing. I put on a hearing. I thought it'd be quite fun about just what a bigot he was. And actually, it turned out to be really, really ugly. I mean, he had 60 cops in the courtroom with reflecting sunglasses, and um, he was like six foot six and he was in coveralls chewing tobacco the whole time. And we talked about the different racist expletives he used to describe young black men. And as he got off the witness stand, he came past me and he said, now, boy, don't you be coming through my county after dark now. And, you know, that was it. And that wasn't very long ago. And when you look around, it is extraordinary that we had President Obama but you'll notice he didn't win a lot of those southern states. Um, and the flip side of that is, let's face it, we in America, and I speak as half American, are way better at talking about race than people in Britain who just get all embarrassed and won't, won't deal with the things. I mean, the fact we're finally talking about all of these slave owners and we haven't had that discussion for yonks, you know, it's just extraordinary. You th so you, you think actually the discourse around race in America is healthier than it is in Britain. Oh, much. I mean, there is a discourse, whereas in Britain there hasn't been. And, you know, look, the things that people say in this country, the number of people, we did a Black Lives Banner, um, Black Lives Matter banner up on the hill just where I live in Dorset. We'd, we'd spent three days sewing it and it was 40 feet by 25 feet. The number of people in this country who came up and said, well, all lives matter. And, you know, that's just something. I called all my American friends because I couldn't believe these people were saying that. And no one in America would say that. They might say something far worse. You know, the, you know Johnny Reb, Redneck in the Deep South might start spouting about the Civil War. But, but nobody in what we loosely refer to as polite society would, would say something like that. And that just illustrates, I think, uh, that Britain just doesn't confront its issues. It's very insensitive. In, in the realm of the judicial system in America, Clive, we're, we're looking at, we've seen the, the murder of George Floyd, the astonishing murder in Atlanta uh, over the weekend as well. Um, do you feel that in a world in which Joe Biden becomes president and these protests continue to have the impact that they're having and make people confront the problems. That the, the, Do you foresee a situation in which the police force and the policing in America is vastly different to it is now? The judicial system is vastly different. There is a greater sense of fairness, a greater representation, a greater chance that, you know, I remember a piece you wrote for us two or three years ago, one in three people in Georgia, I think you said one in three black guys in Georgia may risk, may end up in prison, one in three, because of a, a system loaded against them. Do you feel this is a moment, I guess I'm saying, where these fundamental facts of life in terms of the judicial system are wobbling and will actually change? Well, let's, let's first confront the issues in Britain. If you look at the judicial system in Britain, at the current rate, 
at which we're appointing uh, minority people, BAME people, to QCs and judges. It's going to take 100 years before the British system will be representative, 50 years before it will be representative of women. So I think it's really important to look at Britain and, and ask ourselves why it's not a bigger issue here. But the flip side of that is that we're lucky in Britain insofar as notwithstanding uh, just an innate racism that permeates society, permeates us all. Let's face it, I'm not pretending that I'm so perfect. Um, that at least we don't tend to do so many extreme things as the U.S. And the militarization of the police force in the U.S. is terrifying for society because we see it creeping in in Britain with a few cops who have guns. But there, were, there have been 23 people killed by police officers uh, in Britain in the last 10 years. In America, it's 10 thousand, 10,000 people, more, four times as many people killed by American police as have been killed in the 18 years of the Afghan war, you know, twice as many as were killed in Iraq. It's an extraordinary number. And so there needs to be a radical rethinking. The whole idea of policing, not by consent, but by gunfire, is, is awful. And it's awful for the police too, don't get me wrong. The idea of being a police officer out there in a thin blue line notion where it's us against them is anathema. And, and it just can't be the way that we run a society, really. Um, but, but that's that's all right. That's all true, I, uh, Clive. But is that going to change the idea of uh, defunding the police? I heard someone say, they're talking to someone in Atlanta, a cop, who said there's a belief the attitude when you go out on the streets is you'd rather be in front of 12 people than carried by six. The idea being you'd rather be in front of a jury for shooting someone than being carried in a coffin by six people. So there's this sort of, like you say, it works in, in all senses. The police are completely geared up, militarized, ready to shoot. Uh, and they have been for years. Is this a moment where that changes or is this, in your view, a moment where it peters out? Well, it's very difficult to say. We've been through the Rodney King affair. We've been through a number of similar things in the past. Uh, and I suppose the question is whether society is willing to confront the difficult issues. And I'm always afraid that they're not. Uh, if you look at the tide of populism, uh, that's not just in America with Mr. Trump, but it's with all sorts of leaders in the world at the moment, it is actually much easier to inspire people to fear and hate than it is to inspire them to do something worthwhile. It's not that much easier, but we don't have politicians who are willing to try. And if you look at the fundamental problems of America, which is that in a country of 360 million people, we've got more than 300 million guns. Um, we don't have a proper health service. We don't have a welfare system. We don't have a decent education system then we've got really big problems and we're going to have to either solve those in a sensible way, which requires uh, coherent and hard work, or we're just going to have a bunch of populist mad people who are going to, like Trump, blame it on a, a small group of people. Uh, so it's tough. I, I think America is in a very bad place um, and I'm not terribly optimistic about its future. Because I don't see that Biden doesn't really have a dream, does he? If you ask Joe Biden to get on your program and in one lengthy paragraph sum up his dream for the world, he couldn't do it. 
But the argument is that, it, and this was the argument that the Democrats faced, that anyone more radical than Biden would never get elected. So, so I don't think they're right. Uh, and historically, I remember when Mario Cuomo was running for governor time and time again, and he would stand up and, and preach what he really believed in. And he was very sincere and he was utterly opposed to the death penalty when the death penalty was meant to be the only way to get elected. And so I think the Democrats are wrong on that. Uh, but at the same time, they've got to have a dream because otherwise they can't inspire people to do anything. And, but that's a worldwide problem, let's face it. I mean, it's, uh, if you ask our, our dearly beloved prime minister what his dream, and dream is, I don't think he'd be able to tell you. The, uh, I, I wanted to give the name of the guy who, lost, who died in Atlanta, Rayshard Brooks. And when I heard about that shooting, Clive, I kind of thought I'd just seen a video of something a year ago. And the fact that it could happen in Atlanta in the you know at the time you know week a week more than a week after George Floyd in the teeth of these protests where everyone in America you'd have thought law enforcement especially were incredibly conscious of these issues that we're talking about and the fact that he's running away and he's shot by a policeman as he runs away while this is going on it, it almost makes you think well if not if not now when isn't that just a testament to the fact that that is happening all the time anyway? And it's just that now the eyes of the media, the global media, is on that particular I've thing. I've got to say you're totally right there. I mean, it is the fact we have an iPhone. I was talking to one of my clients in Guantanamo about this, and he was talking about how hundreds and hundreds of times he's been what they called earthed which is where the emergency reaction force comes in and there are half a dozen of them. They kneel on his back and his neck and they force him to the ground and they, you know, shackle him up and they drag him off somewhere. And he was saying, look, there are cameras there, but they're cameras that you never get to see. And indeed those cameras are actually taking those pictures uh, and they scream at him in the meantime saying, don't resist, don't resist. Although he obviously isn't resisting. And all of that is just about uh, protecting the people who are abusing him. And this happens all the time. The extraordinary thing that we're seeing today are pictures being taken by other people who that, that then go off on social media. And it's not just the police. I mean, I, you know, the police killing people. Isn't it extraordinary that when people are protesting that we shouldn't kneel on people's necks and kill them, that the police officer in Seattle is kneeling on the neck of a protester. <laughs> or as my client in Guantanamo said, he was most shocked by the, the old white guy who was protesting up in uh, New York, where they knocked him over and caused him brain damage. That sort of violence by the police is just horrendous. And I think we're asking the wrong questions. We're, we shouldn't just be asking why the police do this. We should be looking much deeper and asking who are we recruiting to be police officers and how are we training these people such mm. that their response is so horrendously violent? And, and there's an obvious answer. Or more, or more broadly, Clive, what is the function of a police force in, in, in the modern world? Where if you think of it, you know, it's the, the institution in, in Britain is, is, is sort of two or three hundred years old. And I imagine there's lots of stuff. So when people talk about defunding the police, and it sounds at one level, of course, you must have police, because otherwise people will just commit loads of crimes. But the flip side is to say, what function actually do police perform, like crowd management, like dealing with people with mental health problems? There's all sorts of things that the police are now asked to do 
that was never necessarily intended. And if you then throw into that, you attract a certain type of person who's attracted to a militaristic type place, you give them a gun and you make them frightened. You can see why we're in the mess, can't you? Well, you certainly can. And I think you put your finger at some level on what we should be doing. I was talking to the daughter of a friend of mine who is a police officer down here. Uh, and she was bemoaning the fact that so much of her job is to go and calm down people who have uh, mental issues. And I was telling her, look, that's great. You know, that is fantastic that you're doing that. And indeed, I've met a couple of police. Uh, I've had people that I've been dealing with where the police have behaved incredibly well. And if we could focus the job of the police on you know, reconciliation and being nice and helping people out and so on and so forth. You know, that's what most police do every day or should be doing. It's very rare that there's a dangerous situation. I went up to one of those police officers with a submachine gun outside New Scotland Yard one time, and I just asked him, you know, you've never used that gun, right? And if you did, it's a machine gun. Who are you going to kill? And he, ne- he said he'd never used it. Um, And you really do wonder at that. Obviously, our populist politicians want to wave those guns around and act like they're being tough. But they're not being tough. They're being rather foolish, I think. And I don't think that's what most police officers want to do. Well, Clive, it's, uh, I don't know whether to feel optimistic or pessimistic talking to you. Your, your light is, it burns undiminished amid all of this injustice. Um, even when we're talking about Guantanamo, it's still kind of, that's kind of unimaginable that that still exists in, in the manner it does. There's still people on death row. It's not likely that America's going to abandon the death penalty. Is this, a, is this a podcast of misery, do you think, Clive, or do you still have some lingering? Oh, I have total hope. I mean, look, what I would love is how if you do things right, you can get great things out of everyone. I always think of uh, trying a capital case to 12 Pentecostal jurors who had sworn up and down that they would you know, execute you as soon as look at you. But what was great about those jurors is that they really thought that failing to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior was a worse crime than murdering someone. And once you establish that, there's nothing these people won't do uh, for my client who killed two people that was a Christian. And that's true of everybody. If we can just figure out the way, I bet, Stig, if we worked out what made you tick, we could get you to behave really quite well and not have so many exclamation marks on your... Uh, on the, uh, on your um, well, I'm glad- I'm glad we're getting to this. We're doing this on Zoom and my, I let my children use Zoom. And so instead of it's my name, it says Nels and Ted with 13 exclamation marks. And Clive Stafford... 616, six, Yeah, yeah Clive, <laughs> Clive Stafford-Smith, who is uncowed as he walks into Guantanamo Bay and he takes on the might of the American judicial system, is appalled by my children's use of exclamation marks. <laughs> I'm all, generally appalled by you, Stick. I mean, that's, obviously that's, that's got to be true. That's fair. But but what you're talking about generally, it's all about the levers, isn't it? Life is about finding the levers and pulling them. It is. It's about finding what makes people tick and talking to people in their right language. And then wonderful things can happen. And, you know, the bottom line is that the things you talk about, Guantanamo, the death penalty and so forth, they're just deranged. So, you know, we're going to win those battles. And when the history books are written... They're not going to say it was a great idea to torture people. They're not going to say that executing people in grotesque ways was a wonderful week. Um, there is just the question of how many people are going to suffer in the meantime. And in, in the meantime, 
um, on a parting note, 14 days in May is still very relevant and still online. Um, so we can send everyone off to watch that if they haven't already seen it. Yeah, and you can be as depressed as me when I watch. Clive, what a, what a, what a pleasure as ever is talking to you. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Regular listeners to this podcast will know that I'm something of a fan of historical fiction, so my eyes gleamed at the prospect of an essay by Harry Sidebottom on the subject of ancient responses to plagues. Harry is the author of the Throne of the Caesars novels and my personal favourite, the Warriors of Rome series too. This week he tells us that the classical world was no stranger to epidemics and that a serious outbreak happened around the Mediterranean every 10 or 20 years. And there were some catastrophic examples. The Plague of Athens in 430 BC, memorably described by Thucydides, and the Antonine Plague some 600 years later, which was treated by Galen, one of the most famous doctors of antiquity. So what did they know about sickness back then and how to treat it? One cure was apparently the urine of a young boy, which, as Harry points out, is safer than giving bleach a go. Harry joins us now. Hello. Hi. Um, shall we, we should probably start early. Is Thucydides the sort of the grandfather of, of ancient plague narrative, do you think? Oh, he is the godfather. He's, he's the total man for ancient plagues. Um, and it's, it's, Thucydides sets the model he sets history, all subsequent history writing, in his own image. And he, of course, had 
remodeled history from Herodotus's version. So he'd taken out women, he'd taken out the gods, geography, ethnography. He'd left in, well, he brought it down really to men doing politics and war. And then there was a big plague in Athens during the Peloponnesian War, the war between Athens and Sparta that he wrote about. And he gives us a bravura description of plague. I mean, it really is a zombie apocalypse movie almost. And from then on, every ancient historian tries to at least pay lip service to Thucydides' standards. So every ancient historian after that wants a big plague. And I think um, it, uh, it sets the model of all plagues are terrible in the ancient world. And that means that they are, they are prone to it. I mean, because one of the things that Thucydides does is he, in warfare, he makes up speeches to make it sound grand and exciting. Does he adopt the same kind of hyperbole when it comes to, to telling about plagues? We can't tell. Um, and this is one of the key evidence problems, is we actually have no idea how significant any of these plagues were. And if we look at the um, Antonine Plague, which um, all these dates are very fuzzy, but it's sort of circa 160 to 180 Christian era. Scholarly estimates on the of fatalities in the population range all the way from 1% to 50%. Every other person dies. And it's a factor of that we just don't have any statistics. I mean, if the UK government in COVID had an awful lot of problems getting the statistics, interpreting them, presenting to the public, think of the Ferrari about deaths in care homes. Basically, the statistics never existed for the ancient world. Um, so we can't expect to find them. And thus, you can have these diametrically different opinions on ancient plagues. At one end, they're really nothing much at all. They're a literary construction. At the other end, literary construction based on Thucydides, emulating and rivaling him. At the other end, you know, they... they they are the smoking gun that kills the Roman Empire. Did they, in the early, in this very early stage, had they sort of started to understand how it worked in terms of contagion? Because the way that you're describing it seems almost like a, a drama somehow unconnected from the person that's writing it. They did have a vague idea of contagion. Um, well, a lovely story that uh, Ammianus Marcellinus, the 4th century Christian era Latin historian gives about the, the cause of the Antonine Plague is that the Roman armies are busily looting a temple in what's modern Iraq, in Babylon. And they find a little crevice under the temple in which those nasty, devious, magic-using Easterners have, have somehow locked up, and for some unknown reason, locked up a hideous plague. And of course, the avaricious soldiers smash it open, out comes the plague, but then it travels back to Rome and to the empire with the soldiers. So there is a certain sense of contagion with plagues passing from person to person. But really, it's not their favoured explanation. They prefer a sort of more, a vaguer, it's something in the air, it's a miasma. It's, um, it's like the bit in Indiana Jones in the, when they get the lost ark and suddenly whoosh, strange stuff comes out of the ground and it pervades everything. So they had a sense of contagion, but not much. And they would tend to explain it through by reference to the divine. Always. Um, as in the story I just gave of Ammianus, you know, it, it's, um, it's the sacrilege of the soldiers yeah, that yeah. unleash this plague on everyone. And so, of course, this greatly hampers their attempts to control, let alone cure it, because really the best thing to do is stick up an invocation to the god Apollo on your door. <laughs> That'll do it. <laughs> yeah. well, I, mean, I mean, they have lots of other absolutely bonkers ideas of, of as you know, said in the intro, um, 
drinking urine of a small boy, milk from one uh, herd of cows in Italy. Lots of mustard apparently helps too. I'd be, I'd be laughing. <laughs> We, where do you stand on on how serious this all, all was then, Harry? Because you know, with the Black Death, for example, we can see, we can chart the. I mean, I know there's still a lot of arguments about that, but you can chart the economic and sociological impact of the Black Death on Britain, for example, and how it changes uh, social structures and and it changes the economy. We can just about manage to see that. Where do you feel? instinctively um the scale of the plague was to, to take the antonine plague do you, do you buy the argument that was the beginning of the end of the roman empire um actually no i don't um it's been very well argued by cambridge john richard duncan jones it's recently been brought to a much wider audience by an american scholar carl harper in a popular book called the fate of rome but um coming to this debate which I also say, in the age of internet rage, is a really civilised debate. It's really nice to find people who aren't insulting each other. But um, no, the vast majority of scholarly reaction has been, no, it didn't cause a massive um, cataclysmic event. And I, I keep coming up against a probably you know, pretty simplistic uh, stumbling block, which is you've got the Antonine Plague, 160 to 180, then you've got the Plague of associated with the name of Cyprian, the Christian writer, circa 250 to 270. And if they caused the fall of the Roman Empire, how come the empire doesn't fall for uh, about 120 years after that? It's not a smoking gun. If it works at all, it's a very, very slow-acting poison. And I I think that's a big problem with the theory. The the, the modern um, or post-ancient comparison I'm interested in is, we've talked about this a bit on this podcast, actually, is that it's very striking how little the literary record in the the modern world reflects the existence of the plague. So Shakespeare doesn't write a lot about the plague. Chaucer doesn't write a lot about the plague. The modernists don't write a lot about the Spanish flu. It's kind of there and it it sort of impinges on the tone uh, of, of the writing, but it's not often the center stage of what's going on. From what you're saying, probably because of Thucydides, in the ancient world, a plague was more to be written about. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, shifting from historian to novelist, um, no writer wants his material to be dull, uninteresting, second rate. And if there's an impetus in the genre you work in to have a plague scene, I mean, you want it to be a big plague. <laughs> there's no point in having a few people dying. Who cares? You, know, you, you, you want corpses piling up in the street, really. So I think the classical example is very different from the sort of the Shakespearean one. They're almost, their genre almost positively encourages massive plagues. I love the fact that we're talking about history here and you're, you're, people are writing history not because it happened, because, but because they need to rival a long-dead Greek historian. Well, I think it's impossible to overestimate sort of literary culture in the classical world. I mean, these people... They looked um, for, to interpret their own times and look forward entirely by looking backwards. And almost everything they've done, every thought they have, their entire, their self-fashioning, as scholars often say, is done often in reference to books that were written 500 years earlier. Yeah, I find that fascinating. I was thinking about this uh, in regards to something else that is one of the most amazing things about the Enlightenment, really, is there's a period in history where people stopped believing that the the people before them had found everything out. And if only you could get a more perfect example of what they thought, you'd get closer to a more perfect understanding of the world. And then the whole of modernity comes from a shift from that to thinking, actually, you know what, they knew less than us. They were, they, they, we, we can find out more by looking forward rather than looking back. It's, it must be one of the great pivots in, in humanity. Yeah, presumably, is it um, 
when does it happen? The Renaissance or later? Well, it's probably it's probably the enlight it's probably the Enlightenment, isn't it? Because the Renaissance is really based on the notion that getting back to the you know the rebirth of the classical text. So getting you know, understanding you know humanism was about finding out a better understanding of the original text. You know translating properly and understanding their world. It must be the Enlightenment where you stop thinking actually these guys knew less than us. We've advanced further and we can advance further still. I just it's one of the, I just think that's that must be the moment when that happens. That's when everything shifts. Because as you say, otherwise the attitude is what happened before, let's get closer to it. And what happened before will happen again. I mean, one of the going back to specifically to ancient plagues, Galen, the great doctor, lived through the Antonine Plague. He very bravely treats patients with bizarre remedies that um, according to him work, but in pure chance. And he gives us some of the symptoms of it which look really to be rather different from those of the plague of Thucydides. But at the same time, he confidently says, this is the plague of Thucydides returning. So you're, you're, their vision was very filtered through this always looking to the past and what's happened before will happen again. I suppose one thing that happened before and is happening again now is for all of the you know, the enlightenment and that pivot that you described, Stig, on both sides of that pivot, conspiracy theories abound. Uh, you mentioned a few in your piece, <laughs> Harry. Yes, well, I, I, my favourite of all um, is from Cassius Dio, a Greek historian. And before I tell the story, I mean, it's important to know that this guy was incredibly clever, incredibly well-educated. He was one of the pepidumenoi, the men skilled in paideia culture. It's not only that, he's a leading politician. He's Roman senator, Roman consul twice, advisor to two emperors. And then he wheels out this bizarre story, conspiracy theory story, of a plague under the Emperor Commodus. Apparently a terrible plague, as they all are, 2,000 a day dying in Rome, countless thousands in the provinces. Uh, but it turns out not to be a plague at all. It's actually a bunch of secret agents who are <coughs> creeping around with poison smeared on needles and, and stabbing people when they're not noticing. And, um, and they're doing it for pay. And Cassius Dio doesn't say who's paying them, but the... The logic of the text leads you to believe it's that evil Emperor Commodus who, for some unexplained reason, is trying to kill a large number of his subjects. It's wonderfully bonkers. It's the, five, it's the 5G of its era, is what you're saying. <laughs> Absolutely. But it, it did remind me of a friend who, um, his doctor, who went to pick his daughter up at the out of four lockdown from university and was horrified that her two flatmates seemed to genuinely believe the UK government, if it hadn't actually introduced COVID, was deliberately um, encouraging the spread of it to kill large sections of the population they didn't like. And I think you know, if, if there's one moral lesson you can get from the ancients dealing with plague, and there's certainly no practical lessons we can get from them, unless you fancy drinking the urine of a small boy, um, is not to fall for these ludicrous cons conspiracy theories. And maybe well, also not to blame groups you don't like, like devious Easterners or hideous, greedy soldiers or anyone else you pick on. Well, that's a, I think that's a moral uh, we should always uh, take he heed of. Uh, Harry Sidebottom, what a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. There are lots of things in the world which are important but not often properly discussed. Sewage systems, for example. Perhaps the poster child for this, though, is shipping, which is indeed, as Tom Stevenson has pointed out, the most essential feature of the modern productive economy. Up to 90% of all goods are transported by ships 
across oceans. But this mercantile network is also closely linked to the demands of nation states for whom shipping lines form the basis of economic and diplomatic decision making. If one were to draw a map of global power, says Tom Stevenson, it should not be a Mercator projection of the Earth, but a nautical chart. It's an oddly fascinating subject, as Tom learns in his review of the book Sinews of War and Trade by Lala Khalili. He joins Thea and me to tell us more. Tom, hello. Hello. Um, you say this in, in the piece, uh, and I certainly find it to be true, that the idea, the concept of the age of seafaring, it feels like something from a couple of centuries ago. Uh, and that surely in the world of modern technology, big ships moving around the oceans uh, feels something of an anachronism. That's not right, is it? No, indeed. I mean, there is certainly the idea of ocean travel, I think, retains a, a romantic appeal. And that's in part because air travel is so awful and in part because almost <laughs> yeah. none of us actually get to experience um, sea travel as well. So we're insulated from the difficulties of it. Um, but it feels as like as though it's something from a distant past, one instantly thinks of the literary history um, or of the, the jargon that surrounds seafaring. But in fact, shipping is of great consequence. I mean, it is still the backbone of what we call international trade and over, the overwhelming majority of goods that are transported around the world are transported on the water. And uh, for that reason, it's an extremely significant topic and area of study. This book was presumably written before coronavirus uh, came along, but presumably this level of goods moving around the world will have been seriously affected by, by, by the onset of, uh, of the pandemic. Yes, I mean, it, it, the point has now been made, I think, uh, extensively that having an international system of uh, supply chains for everything from food to energy to all goods uh, is, is a, a great risk if there is suddenly a virus uh, spreading like wildfire across the whole world. And uh, shipping companies and the like have, have been very greatly affected by it. Uh, they have, by and large, managed to muddle through. Uh, of course, there have been outbreaks on ships. Ships kept at sea, um, kept out, you know, uh, either at anchor or just on the edge of the harbors uh, for fear of spreading infections or because of infections that have broken out. And uh, that's been a, a very, very uh, serious problem. There's no doubt about it. For now, we haven't seen sort of mass shortages as a result of it. Uh, there's been reasonably good management um, from that perspective. Uh, but there's, there's simply no doubt that, uh, that the, the level of uh, goods transfer across the world is reduced. And one, if one imagines the oceans is covered in enormous ocean-going vessels, shipping everything from grains to microchips um, here and there, many, a great many of them have been either slowed down or brought to a halt by this. What you've just described gives a, a, an image of everything being, you know, very interconnected, obviously, and uh, there are ports all around the world. But if that would lead you to believe that this is a kind of globalised and equal opportunities kind of world, it really, really, really isn't. What something that comes across very clearly is how everything is controlled by a very, very small group of national interests. And there really doesn't appear to be much opportunity for that to change. I think there are there's sort of two lines of thinking there. One, which Lala Khalili's book, I think, does a very good job. The research in it does a very good job of showing is the, the sort of the extent of the class and racial hierarchies which operate within shipping and predominate within shipping, which are invisible to almost all of us. And that very strongly goes against the idea of a, of a utopic, interconnected, globalized world. And on the, on, the other, on the other hand, there's the fact that the image that we have of, of international trade, which I think the shipping also conjures for us, uh, is in some senses misleading. Uh, because research from the UN and the OECD has shown that 
a very great percentage, more than 70% of what we call trade, is in fact transfers of goods internal to multinational corporations. So if Rio Tinto or GlaxoSmithKline or another large corporation transports goods from one of their operations or factories to another, and in the process of that happens to cross an international border, is that trade? There's a sense in which it is, but it, it's not trade as we, I think, commonly conceive of it. And uh, what Khalili's research shows is that, in fact, the, the system is quite tightly controlled by a relatively small number of shipping companies, port terminal companies, and uh, concentrations of corporate power uh, managed by states. And that's the, that last point is the critical one, isn't it? That because this is so critical to geopolitics, harbours, these giant ports, which predominate in the, in the Far East, are owned by the state. The shipping channels are controlled by the US largely. It's big nation states making sure their economic interests are being looked after as much as these giant corporations as well. That's right. I mean, the, the classical liberal uh, economists conceived of there being, you know, a vast ocean and small islands which would trade within it. And at this point, although the oceans, of course, uh, are rising, uh, in, in terms of the metaphor, the opposite is the case. Uh, there's very little free ocean left and the, the islands themselves are, are enormous in terms of states and concentrations of, of corporate power. And so ocean freight is critically important. And in any point, it's surely significant that uh, to be blunt, the United States has near total control of the world's oceans and also a great concentration of the world's capital. And outside of that, there's really only two blocks that matter, a European Union bloc, which is quite internally connected, and then China. And within this picture, it's also very worth remembering that a, a, a very large chunk of what's transported around the world, although it is everything uh, you know, from uh, oranges and bananas and wheat and, uh, to high technology, is in fact crude oil. Crude oil and bulk raw materials in terms of volume, in terms of value, make up a very large chunk of what's going on here. So the most important trading routes, the most important sea lines are those between the Middle East and between the Far East and are nonetheless controlled by the United States, which is very far geographically from either of those poles. And presumably that's, that's a point of tension with China, which imports an awful lot of stuff, presumably not wanting to accept the... He- hegemony of the US that much either. So is that is that a point of tension? Do you think that China's on the rise and it will want to, to disrupt the dominance of the US in this area? Well, it's definitely a point of tension. However, in my view, I mean, there is a common narrative, which uh, very, very common, which is that China is in the process of replacing the United States as a global hegemon, driven by the traditional, uh, you know, the traditional dynamics between great powers and also by what we've been discussing here, the fact that China is much more dependent on seaborne trade than the United States is. In my view, actually, this is quite far removed from reality. I mean, the, the fact is that the U.S. has enormous military dominance. It has control of the international energy system, um, to some extent via shipping. It has total control of the international financial system. If you want to do any kind of financial transaction, whether it's between Argentina and Poland or anyone else, it almost always has to go through U.S. banks because it's done in dollars. And it has control of the world's oceans. So what are we talking about? And certainly China is rising, its economy is growing. Uh, it is f- no doubt envious of the kind of control that the United States has, even right up to China's land borders. Uh, but if we're looking at the world as it in fact stands, then the United States has enormous power. And I think this points to an important area, which is that much of the discussion that we have of international affairs is essentially based on euphemisms. We, we talk about a globalized world, we talk about an international liberal order, rules-based international order, and so on. 
And this is quite far from removed from how things in fact work. We have concentrations of private power managed by states, large blocks within them, and one nation controlling the vast majority of the system on which it runs. And so research in books like, like Khalili's helps to show that. And I think it helps to show more clearly the world that we in fact live in. And actually, would you say then this topic that we don't talk about um, very much, shipping, is actually a pretty good prism through which to look at geopolitics? Absolutely. I mean, because it, it plays that vital role as a sort of a circuitry system for the Earth. I mean, the, the fact is that because waterborne travel is essentially much more efficient, if you need to transport something via land, uh, you know, in, in trucks or even with rail freight, it's much, much more expensive than if you can float it on water. Uh, it just works out to be much more efficient. For that, re- for that reason, it predominates. And so uh, looking at how that works, looking at, okay, this is in fact how the shipping system works. You know, you have, have a system of ports. They have to be built basically by almost always by built and managed by governments. You need uh, navies that are going to protect the, the merchant ships. The most powerful countries will be the ones that, uh, that end up doing that in, in the world in which we live. Overwhelmingly, that's the United States. It has 10 nuclear-powered <laughs> aircraft carriers. No other nation has anything approaching that. And uh, so looking at the world through shipping, which might seem like a mundane topic, is in fact quite a, a good way to get down to the nitty-gritty of how things are in fact run. Well, uh, thank you very much for being able to do that. I, I, when I've, when, when um, Toby, who, uh, who commissioned this piece, told me about it, oh, this is this great thing on shipping, it really will help you understand the world better. Um, I was sceptical, and then I read it, Tom, and it's, it's exactly right. It's a, it is a useful way of, of, of thinking about things. Um, so thank you for writing it, and, and thank you for coming on to talk about it now. My pleasure. It's interesting, that point that um, he, he makes in, in his review, we didn't get a chance to talk about, just now, how uh, the transport of oil by tanker was begun by Marcus Samuel, um, who was the founder of the Shell Oil Company. And only only from reading this piece now did I realise that the Shell Oil Company was so named because he, the, the founder, was the son of a dealer in decorative shells. Yes. Interesting historical detail. I love stuff like that. And that's why this is genuinely interesting, isn't it? Because you don't think I, I just assume in the modern world everything kind of zips about the place on planes i don't know i and of course it doesn't you can't you can't yeah. transport and planes are small basically aren't they yeah um, yeah i mean and the sheer size of these things the tankers is it sort of it, they're they're as long as they're longer than most skyscrapers are at all yeah fascinating stuff um that's all we've got time for uh this week our thanks go to clive stafford smith harry sidebottom and tom stevenson make sure you're subscribing to the tls this week we have a travel issue that will expand your horizons even if you are still partially locked down edward platt rereads some classics of the genre and elsewhere we look at the importance of the everyday the history of fairy tales and one of our writers rereads a novel by michael crichton which he first read when he was slung into a Jerusalem jail in 1970. Next week, it's our traditional canter through summer books, which is always a fun thing to do. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.